Good afternoon. It is Monday, the 13th, September 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Just in time delivery today. Yeah, just very just in time. OK, well, look, we are going to get straight on with that. Well, what's going on in on over the winter period? And uh, well, Sajid Javid, the wonderful health secretary, was on with... Uh, well, not Andrew Marr because he's apparently on holiday or something or something. But anyway, uh, apparently uh, the government is going to set out its plans for the winter in a few days time. It's all very exciting. Vaccines are going to be uh, first line of defense over the autumn and winter period, uh, supported by new treatments. Uh, it's amazing that Pfizer is in the process of developing a, an antiviral, which is pretty much identical in purpose to uh, ivermectin. Uh, but anyway, there we go. Uh, new treatments, uh, testing. Uh, and a world-leading variant surveillance system, so we should feel all very safe and secure as a result. Uh, as of the 9th of September, they claim nearly 90% of the UK population has been uh, has received a first dose of, the, of one of the vaccines. Over 80% have received both doses. Um, but the winter is going to bring renewed challenges. And just as we uh, said a few weeks ago, um, <clears throat> the winter narrative is going to be based on a combination of COVID, uh, influenza, which is making a resurgence, uh, you'll be glad to know, Brian, and uh, RSV and other uh, respiratory viruses. Um, so uh, the government said that the latest Public Health England data shows that vaccines are highly effective against hospitalisation from the Delta variant, uh, and that uh, analysis shows that Pfizer uh, is 96% effective and Oxford AstraZeneca is 92% effective. And so my question then is, are they? Is this true? Uh, is this real, this, this, uh, this claim? Um, and I want to thank the person who sort of suggested that I might want to look at Thailand uh, to have to make an assessment of that. So let's just uh, briefly do that. Here's the World Health Organization website. Uh, there's Thailand, and you see it's one of the darker blue colors, which means it's got a higher incidence uh, than the countries around it, largely. Um, and uh, so let's just have a look at that incidence. So here's the graph. And as you can see, all the way through 2020, and most of the way through, well, certainly until February or March, sorry, March 2021. Uh, Thailand seemed to have no COVID or almost no COVID uh, at all. Uh, nobody testing positive, nobody in hospital, nobody dying. So the uh, top half of that graph is for cases uh, and the bottom half of that graph is for deaths. And so they've got 13,920 deaths registered, uh, but all those began in, uh, in March uh, 2021. Um, so we'll just take the cases as an example, and we'll look at uh, we'll we'll zoom in on this section here. Um, and so here's what we see: uh, the beginning at the end of March, we started to see cases ramping up, and the deaths um, correlate very well with this with this graph. Uh, but if we look at the left hand side here, we're talking about a period from March the 31st, 2021, um, and you can see that the cases come ramps up very very slowly over the next uh, couple of months until about here, about the end of June or so, and suddenly it uh, heads north very, very quickly. And so I just thought it would be useful to see, um, you know, was there anything happened by coincidence at that time? Um, and what we find is that, in fact, Thailand began uh, rolling out its vaccination program in March, but things start, started off very, very slowly. It took them a long time uh, to get things ramped up. So this is March the 1st, 2021. Thailand finally kicks off COVID vaccinations. Um, and this is from Nikkei Asia. Um, 
all the way through March, April, May, uh, there was criticism of Thailand about how slow things were. Uh, and it was really only uh, certain people that were getting vaccinations. And then come the mid-June or so, uh, we find the mass vaccination rollout begins. Um, and uh, so just to show you when that uh, article was published, that was June the 14th. So, um, you know, David, uh, if I could welcome you to the program, I don't know what you think about that. But we, you could say that uh, correlation does not mean causation, but it does seem pretty coincidental that Thailand had virtually nothing going on all the way through 2020 and 2021, up until the point where a vaccination program begins slowly and they have a slow rise in cases. And then when the mass vaccination program begins in earnest, they have a sudden uptick uh, in the number of cases and the number of deaths. Yes, and of course, we've seen this in the UK when they introduced the vaccine into care homes in Scotland, the number of COVID deaths doubled. Um, and when I asked uh, the Scottish government um, about this, I got platitudes and no answer. Um, it, it's a very important question because we hear this from the government the whole time. The vaccines are working, the vaccines are a success, the vaccines are your saviour. Although you've still got to have all these infringements of your liberty, the vaccines are a huge success. And my question is, if the vaccines were in fact a failure and, and part of the problem, what would the figures look like? And I would put it to you that they would look very likely. Look, take Israel, for example. Um, you're leading in vaccination and now with a, a, a COVID rate uh, that's, that's at record levels. Uh, take, take England and Wales. Uh, we're in summer. Uh, we've got 14% above the five-year average a death rate now. So more people are dying now than they did on average for the last five years by a, a significant margin, 1,270 more deaths. The total number of deaths, which even mentioned COVID, is, is only a third of that. So most of it's not COVID. Um, where's it coming from? Where's all the excess death coming from? And uh, where is the, the, the spikes we see in, in COVID rates coming from if the vaccines are a huge success. If the vaccine's in fact a failure and a problem, is this not how it would look? Um, these are very good questions and uh, not many people are asking them. So let's uh, move on. Last week we mentioned uh, this parliamentary bill, a private member's bill being submitted by Christopher Chope uh, in, the, uh, in the House of Commons, of course, uh, the COVID-19 vaccine damage bill. And we made the point, I think we've covered this on Wednesday, we made the point that it was having its second reading on Friday. Uh, and that perhaps uh, some MPs should be contacted, people should be contacting their MPs to, uh, to uh, offer support for this. Um, so there was a, a short debate uh, on it, um, and we'll come on to that in a little bit. But let's just, before we do that, uh, listen to what uh, Christopher Chope had to say. It shows that there have been 767 cases of information of the heart, a condition which is almost unheard of in medicine on a normal day-to-day -day basis. It shows that there have been some 35,000 reports of menstrual disorder, and there are all sorts of other um, effects which are set out in the comprehensive report. But it also, I think very worryingly, says that there are 1,632 reports of deaths having taken place shortly after vaccination. And I think if we're building, trying to build vaccine confidence, we need to actually ensure that we're open to the, to, with the public about the facts. And that's why I was very disappointed 
when I asked the Secretary of State on the 7th of July um, if he, what, is, what information his department holds on the number of deaths that have been reported of people who have died within one month, two months and three months of having received a COVID-19 vaccination since the 1st of January. And, uh, yes, but perhaps it would be more convenient if I actually read out the answer uh, that the, um, we received from the, the Minister. And he said, data on the number of deaths reported of people who have died within one, two and three months of having received the COVID-19 vaccination since the 1st of January is not available in the format requested. Public Health England monitors the number of people who have been admitted to hospital and died from COVID-19 who have received one or two doses of the vaccine and will publish this data in due course. That data has not yet been published. And I think it's very important that we are able to put this issue into context because there's a lot more damage being done to our citizens as a result of COVID-19 vaccinations than in any other vaccination program in history. So that's pretty clear. Uh, no data available with respect to deaths after one, two and three months. This is a, a, another question. I think this is the third time this question has been asked of the government uh, and uh, they still don't have that data, that data available. Now, uh, as the debate went on following that uh, opening statement, um, the issue of compensation came up uh, and it was said that the government had published a press release on the 3rd of December last year saying that COVID-19 would be added to the vaccination damage paying scheme. And he was asked, Christopher Chope was asked, are you saying that this has not been done yet? Uh, and he said, well, I'm saying that it was added to the scheme, but to all intents and purposes, it was just a gesture. Uh, in the substance of it, people have now started applying under the Act for Compensation and none of these cases has been dealt with. Um, so he's uh, calling for review of the whole thing. And uh, uh, he finish, finished off by basically saying, you know, that although private members' bills don't uh, normally end up becoming primary legislation, uh, it's an opportunity for debate in the House. Well, okay. But actually, I think this is important enough, and this is a valid point. Private members' bills generally don't make any progress in the House, and that was the point I was making last week. Unless people are prepared to, to uh, put some pressure on their MPs and get some momentum behind this bill, it's probably not going to uh, get terribly far. But there is an opportunity for debate. Uh, and uh, if I'm right, I think that it goes back to the House of Commons, I think, on the 22nd of uh, September. Um, so it, it will go back for more uh, then. So there is still opportunity to do something about that. But David, I'm wondering what your thoughts uh, would be. Well, the, the position currently on, on compensation is, is the level of injury that, that is required before any government money is paid out is just astronomic. I mean, you have to be, I think it's more than 50% disabled, exactly how that's measured, I'm not sure. But you, you can have life-altering injuries and not even, not even qualify. Um, I'm very glad that there's some people in Parliament raising this as an issue. Yes. Yeah. Well, just to add to that, David, there's been many tragic stories of people uh, vaccine damaged and it's taken them in some cases up to 10 years to receive any form of compensation and when the compensation has been received 
it's been insufficient. It hasn't even covered the expenditure that those families have had over the intervening 10 years. So the government is very, very cynical in its vaccine policy. And inevitably, it would appear, I think, to the man on the Clapham omnibus that the government's job is to protect the profits of the pharmaceutical and the vaccine companies. Why should COVID-19 be any different? Uh, well, just briefly, also on Wednesday, we mentioned this website, No More Silence. Uh, many of you couldn't find it. And indeed, it is very hard to find if you use the normal search engines. I can't imagine why that would be. But anyway, uh, this is the uh, URL for it, nomoresilence.world. So if you want to uh, go and have a look at that website, that's how you get to it. Um, so where does that take us then? Well, then there's the issue of vaccine passports. And because, you know, what is going to happen over the over the winter. Um, and uh, well, uh, as we mentioned, Sajid Javid was on the Andrew Marr show on uh, Sunday. And uh, this is what he had to say. It is only two days ago that Nadim Zahawi, the vaccine minister, says that he didn't like vaccine passports, but it is the right thing to do. Has it overnight become the wrong thing to do? <laughs> there's, no, there's no overnight about it. I mean, first of all, there's a, there's a lot of defences as we've just gone through some of them that we we need to keep in place here you know, because this virus hasn't gone anywhere. There's still a pandemic, so of course we need to remain cautious. But we just shouldn't be doing things for the sake of it or because others are doing it. We should look at every possible intervention properly. So you asked about vaccine passports. So I think it's fair to say, I think most people are probably instinctively don't like the idea. I mean, I, I've never liked the idea of saying to people, you must show your papers or something to, to do you know, what, what is just an everyday activity. But we were right to, you know, to properly look at it, to look at the evidence. But you're not uh, doing but, Well, what I can say is that we've looked at it properly. And whilst we should keep it in reserve as a potential option, I'm pleased to say that we will not be going ahead with plans for vaccine passports. So in the chat box, the question is, can Sajid Javid be believed? And the answer, of course, is absolutely not, because uh, already they're backtracking on this. This is Toby Young this morning. Number 10 is already downplaying the idea that vaccine passports are dead and buried, insisting that they could still form a first-line defence against a winter wave of COVID. But remember, it's not going to be a winter wave of COVID. It's going to be a winter wave of COVID, influenza and RSV. Uh, and uh, so, But the question is, is there a consistent uh, situation across the so-called four nations of the United Kingdom or this United Kingdom, perhaps, uh, David, and according to the Scotsman, uh, not? No, and it's, uh, it has, it has uh, caused a considerable degree of hilarity in Scotland because Nicola's been trying to pretend to lead. Now, she's been following Boris every step of the way and trying to mismake her policy 20% worse than Boris's at, at every turn and pretend this is leadership. So uh, she's not actually led at all, and here she was uh, trumpeting her um, uh, her scheme for vaccine passports, uh, safe in the knowledge that Boris was about to uh, announce his, and therefore she would have political cover when um, uh, Mr Javid said that they weren't doing it. And it's, it's left her in a very awkward position. Uh, because she was asked about this. You're Trevor, she's on the Trevor Phillips show on Sky News. Um, and uh, she was asked about it and she admitted it was unlikely to increase the vaccine uptake. Uh, and she said, quote, nothing is straightforward here. This is a very limited scheme. Will it will reduce the likelihood of people not yet vaccinated uh, to come forward? Uh, I'm not sure there's any evidence of that. Um, I think she meant increase the likelihood. But anyway, uh, that's what the Scotsman quoted her as saying. 
So she's got a policy for which there's no evidence. She's got a policy for which there's no reason. And all she can say is, well, it's limited and it's not straightforward. She's basically announcing she doesn't know what she's doing. Now, that's been clear for some time. Uh, but uh, it's normally hidden under the greater incompetence of Westminster. And here, a little bit of it's been seen. Uh, yes, but uh, don't, we don't need to worry. There's plenty of narrative potential here because uh, the Mu variant, because the, you know, we've got the Delta variant at the moment, but Mu is on its way. Uh, and uh, many headlines now mentioning it, the Mu variant, which may be vaccine resistant, uh, because the claim is that this is the first example which has uh, uh, come about as a result of immune escape, or possibly, or maybe, or maybe not, but really they don't know, but they're still pushing this narrative anyway. Uh, it's now in all 50 states of the United States, and so it is coming. Um, and so we've got to be very afraid of that one as well. Uh, but then I uh, just wanted to highlight, uh, highlight this. Uh, this is uh, PGMBM uh, Chambers, who are apparently changing the world one case at a time. Uh, and they are taking a, a hotel quarantine legal challenge. Um, but what's this all about? Well, they have, uh, they're concerned that the people that are double vaxxed, that it's very unfair that they're being required to uh, quarantine when they come into the UK from red list countries, uh, that the cost of staying in quarantine is now £2,265, uh, but that uh, you know places like Turkey, Mexico, Kenya and other African Latin American countries still on the red list. Um, so they want to uh, make sure that if people uh, have been double vaxxed uh, and have been required to quarantine a result, as a result that they are getting their money back at the very least. Um, and uh, making sure that uh, this doesn't happen again for people that are double vaxxed, um, the rest of us, uh, well, that's uh, our problem. Changing the world one case at a time. Indeed. That's an interesting label. Um, well, I'm going to say uh, this uh, little video I had not seen. It's from a, a few days ago. I'm sorry, I haven't got the exact date from you. Uh, but uh, we've got our very own Prince ha Harry uh, receiving an award, GQ Men of the Year Awards 2021 in association with BOSS, uh, if I remember correctly. I think BOSS is a, a music industry equipment supplier. Is that correct? Well, it depends. It's perhaps the fashion uh, well, it could be, yeah. label. This is true. OK, well, anyway, let's, um, let's dive straight in and listen to what uh, Harry had to say. Good evening to everyone in London. Um, thank you to GQ for hosting tonight's awards ceremony and to Johnny for their kind introduction. It's not often that one gets a chance to wear a tuxedo at 3 p.m., uh, unless, of course, it's from the night before, but, well, here we are. I'm deeply honoured to be introducing our final awardees, who you'll immediately recognise for their landmark contribution to the fight against COVID-19. Our heroes of this evening are Professor Sarah Gilbert, Dr Catherine Green, and the entire team of dedicated Oxford scientists. Their breakthrough research on the Oxford vaccine has brought the world one of the greatest tools for achieving vaccine equity. They also approached their mission with a humanitarian urgency. In April of last year, the Oxford team packed up a shipment of research cultures and stealthily sent it to India, an early example of the biotech collaboration we need to bring this global crisis to an end. Until every community can access the vaccine and until every community is connected to trustworthy information about the vaccine, then we are all at risk. That's a common refrain that my wife and I have heard in convenings with vaccine experts, heads of industry, community advocates, and global leaders. 
As people sit in the room with you tonight, more than a third of the global population has received at least one dose of the vaccine. That's more than five billion shots given around the world so far. And it sounds like a major accomplishment, and in many ways it is. But there is a huge disparity between who can and cannot access the vaccine. Less than 2% of people in the developing world have received a single dose at this point. And many of the healthcare workers are still not vaccinated. We cannot move forward together unless we address this imbalance as one. At the same time, families around the world are being overwhelmed by mass-scale misinformation across news media and social media, where those who peddle in lies and fear are creating vaccine hesitancy, which in turn is dividing communities and eroding trust. This is a system we need to break if we are to overcome COVID-19 and the risk of new variants. The Oxford team have done their part. They are heroes of the highest order who gave us an instrument to fight this disease. They are our nation's pride, and we are deeply indebted to their service. For the rest of us, including global governments, pharmaceutical leaders, and heads of business, we have to keep doing our part. That must include sharing vaccine science and supporting and empowering developing countries with more flexibility. There's something I'd like to know. What, what would you like to know, Mark? I, I would like to know that if the government is claiming 90% of people have had a first dose and 80% of people have a second dose, uh, that the numbers of people who are supposedly vaccine hesitant are very, very small. Why are they so um, worried? Hysterical about it. Hysterical is the only word I can come up with uh, because uh, they are particularly concerned about anti-vaxxers. Why are they so concerned? Uh, because the plan isn't rolling out quite as uh, they had wanted. And many people, of course, are not just he hesitant, they're deeply concerned. David, uh, I knew we'd get a reaction. I knew we'd get a reaction to this speech by young that, Harry. That was outstanding. Yeah. A um, couple of things. Firstly, it is Hugo Boss, the fashion designer that sponsors that, which is, of course, appropriate, as they were the fashion designers for the uh, Waffen SS. Just pointing that out. Um, I've got some questions. The news media are peddling lies and fear in order to prevent people getting a vaccine. What planet is he on and what's the weather like there? We've seen nothing but wall-to-wall fear-mongering in order to hound people towards getting the vaccine. What is he talking about? Right? I mean, that's just utterly irrational. And um, I was also wondering why the Oxford, the wonderful Oxford team, were stealthily exporting um, samples to India. That doesn't seem to be the sort of thing you want to be happening stealthily. Is that not something that should be done kind of like, you know, openly and honestly? This seemed a strange, a strange choice of word. Um, and... On we go here. So the, the the agenda, one of the agendas will be coercive vaccination of the third world. That's quite clear. Presumably whether they want to or not, because any country that resists is going to be demonized and painted in a anti-vax mode, uh, mode and, uh, and will have all of the um, 
the, the, the powers of media darkness directed against them on, a, on an international scale. Um, so that's how we, that's how we treat uh, people in other countries with equity, apparently. Uh, yeah, but we might also assassinate their leaders, of course, as well. That's the other option available to us, isn't it? I'll just say, I think you covered most of the points there, David. I was just disgusted at the arrogance of young Harry um, when he was using the we word, which he did all the time. We have been talking to the vac vac uh, vaccine companies. We have been talking to the experts. We, we, we. Uh, he then mentions our nation. And I thought, well, that's got to be the classic in his statement because which nation is he talking about? He's walked away from his nation. He's taken the money, walked away overseas, and now he's suddenly become some vaccine expert. And I think actually there's there's a very empty vessel talking there. So I think probably we should leave it there. But uh, of course, meanwhile, over the weekend, we've had... Um, a story coming out about Prince Andrew retreating behind the castle walls to avoid um, delivery or service of documents. Uh, so I think uh, we'll just park Harry at the moment because I don't think there's any sense in him. And clearly that speech was written, but uh, I thought our audience would enjoy listening to it. Meanwhile, let's have a look at reality. And this brings us back to Australia. And thank you for the people who pointed out this particular video clip. Uh, we've had to edit it quite hard in order to get it down short enough to include in today's news. Uh, but it's pretty evident what's going on. Let's have a look at this. Good evening, my fellow Australians. Uh, in today's news in Sydney, a shocking and disgusting event. Another example of police harassing and intimidating the good citizens of Western Sydney. And it's no surprise, once again, police are targeting multicultural communities. Uh, this particular instance, they've targeted members of Sydney's uh, Middle Eastern communities, Arabic communities. Now, look at this uh, very confronting footage we're about to show you. Uh, it's an absolute, it's an absolute shock and horror. Now, what you're about to see is a man and his family at a shopping centre uh, being arrested and handcuffed uh, on the, onto the ground by New South Wales police for not wearing a mask. Now the man uh, obviously has a medical condition. He's got a heart. He's got a, something wrong with his heart. He's got heart problems, and look how the police uh, treat him, treat his family, and uh, for a full four minutes, this man is collapsed onto the ground. Get up. 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 Get up.
It's okay. Um, right, as I said, that uh, clip we had to edit quite a bit, so it's much more protracted than it appears there. Encourage people to go to the source and watch it. Uh, but of course, we, we have uh, people arrested simply for not wearing a mask, and then when they show signs of severe medical problems, the police either don't know how to deal with it or can't deal with it. Mm. And it, uh, it took at least four minutes before the lady police constable took the handcuffs off the, off the man on the ground. And of course, he was in severe distress with a heart problem. He um, ultimately needed um, CPR. Uh, we believe he survived, but he was under arrest in hospital. Um, but the behaviour of the police, uh, I think, truly appalling that they didn't uncuff his, his hands, which would restricted his breathing while his hands were behind his back. Um, and uh, then what happened was the full might of the police came in to deal with the um, understandably outraged crowd. Now let's have a look at the second part of this clip where a comparison is made with the report in the mainstream media. Sorry, we don't have a second part. Uh, sorry, it's, yes. yes, I'm sorry, I'm going to play it here for you. Um, but uh, basically, um, there's no sound, so I'll take you through what's happening. Uh, when we look at what the report was here live uh, in Australia, the focus was simply on the, uh, obviously, the agitated interaction between people and the police. So the start of the incident, what had occurred, was simply not reported by the mainstream media at all. All they focused on was those terrible people um, having an affray, causing trouble, um, accusing the police. And uh, at the end of the day, uh, Aussie uh, Cossack identified quite correctly that the mainstream media wasn't interested in telling the truth about the incident and the damage to the man who'd been taken to hospital and was continuing to be held under arrest, even though he was by then seriously in a hospital, the mainstream news had a completely different story to tell, which was essentially to protect the reputation of the police. Mm. Um, what uh, is the message we'd like to get across? Well, of course, the behaviour of the police in 
Australia, the behavior of the police in UK, in US, showing similar traits. And this is understandable because, of course, the same reframing techniques have been used across police forces across the world, with the UK boasting of using its applied behavioral psychology to change the way that people think and behave. So we'll leave it to our audience to get back to that mind space 2010, the UK Cabinet Office document where the, gov the British government was boasting of the technology to change the behaviour of people. And that technology was sold uh, to Australia as well as other countries. Uh, now, we'll just jump across to Poland and an image here, but this is a freedom march uh, that took place in the last couple of days. So it's quite clear that across Europe, at least, many people are not sitting idly by while the uh, COVID lockdown and policies uh, are enforced. So very big uh, demonstration in Poland. Okay, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. That would be very much appreciated. And also do share our material on the various platforms. Um, also, we've got a quite an important article uh, published yesterday by Dr. Mike Williams uh, on the UK Column website called Stabilizing the Code. Now, this is all about the uh, manipulation and the modification of uh, RNA, uh, it, including the modification of the RNA in, in the mRNA uh, vaccines for COVID-19 in order to make uh, the injected uh, RNA acceptable and not come under attack by the immune system. And he's making the point uh, of what the implications of that are uh, for the broader immune system. Uh, and particularly highlighting the fact that there's quite a bit in the scientific literature appearing over the last number of months uh, about the levels of cancer uh, in the population, which seem to be, uh, it's not proven yet, but certainly the questions need to be asked about what the links are between, uh, between the, the effect of this modified MR, uh, mRNA on the immune system and the rise of cancers. So do have a read of that article and share it. Okay, well, let's uh, have a look at some emails that have come into the UK column. This one was about CCTV cameras being installed in the cubicles at Newton Abbott College. So CCTV installed in the toilet cubicles in a college. And a uh, parent uh, emailed us, say, over the summer holidays, my child's school installed CCTV in the ch children's toilets without any parental consultation. And this particular viewer was also kind enough to identify a number of other uh, cases where this sort of thing has happened across the country, usually without any interaction with the parents at all. Uh, but this particular parent is saying they're working with a group of other parents who are absolutely going to take on this case and uh, fight the school and its, uh, its policies. Uh, we do get other emails which make us smile. This one was the end of an email sent to us, but it says best wishes and a big thank you. I don't know why, but for some reason, the last episode from Friday the 10th of September made me laugh out loud. I, or, I guess it was that or cry. Both yours and Mike's dry humour does have me tittering. So thank you very much for that. And uh, this is a more serious one. When those of the snowflake generation demand of authority, absolute protection from each and every possible ill that might befall them, be it viruses, adversity, offensive remarks, enemies real and imagined. I'm reminding of the slightly amended words of President Eisenhower, 
and they put the quote in, if all they want is security, they can go to prison. They'll have enough to eat, a bed and a roof over their heads, but if they want to preserve their dignity and their equality as a human being, they must not bow their neck to any dictatorial government. So that seems to be on message. And that email also went on to say, you may have seen the moving speech by Graham Hood, a Qantas airline pilot of 32 years standing, refusing to accept the no jab, no job diktat of his employer. It's worth a listen. There's a link on screen for you. There are several legal actions being mounted here. Uh, it's in Australia against the government's no jab, no job policy, including by serving police officers. I sense the wheels are beginning to come off the vaccine at all costs. Narrative, here's hoping. And that's from Richard in Sydney. Uh, David, uh, uh, Saturday, of course, was the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, so we have a little bit of video here. Uh, yes, this is just um, one of the many unresolved inconsistencies uh, that uh, has resulted in the official narrative being utterly unbelievable and, and having no credibility whatsoever. It's not often seen. Apparently, it was only shown once on live television and never again. It's worth uh, looking back at it. On CNN's military affairs correspondent, Jamie McIntyre. Jamie, you got very close to where that plane went down. That's right, Judy. A short uh, a while ago, I walked right up to next to the building where uh, firefighters were still trying to put out the blaze. The, the fire, by the way, is still burning in some parts of the Pentagon. And I took a look at the huge gaping hole that's in this sideway. But from my close-up inspection, uh, there's no evidence of a plane having crashed anywhere near the Pentagon. The only site uh, is the actual uh, side of the building that's crashed in. And as I said, the only pieces left uh, that you can see are, are small enough that you could pick up in your hand. Uh, there are no large uh, tail sections, wing sections, uh, a fuselage, nothing like that anywhere. So um, one of many pieces of evidence that show that, uh, that, that what we've been told about 9-11 is a complete fabrication and uh, is not credible. Uh, but in the meantime, David, uh, various leaders uh, meeting to commemorate. Well, I thought this was a wonderful contrast here because here we see all of the presidents lined up at the official 9-11 commemoration. All bar one, there's no Donald Trump. And just as, as the mainstream press was getting into the, the line of all Trump snubs, 9-11 uh, veterans, uh, and doesn't show up for this, uh, someone found out where the Donald was. And the Donald was, in fact, in the middle of New York here, surrounded by police and firefighters getting his photograph taken with a lot of people who were delighted to be in his presence. And of course, um, Joe Biden cannot do that. Uh, Joe Biden and the entire current administration couldn't go anywhere near the public in an uh, informal and... Um, uh, uncontrolled setting like that, he wouldn't get smiles and handshakes and selfies. No, he would get hostility and uh, a good talking to. So uh, it's all for the, the, the leaders. It's all um, uh, photo shoots that are tightly controlled with beautiful black masks so you can't see anyone's face. And for the Donald, um, it's uh, life amongst the people. An interesting contrast, don't you think? Uh, yes, but if we uh, stick with Biden for a second then, of course, last week, uh, Brian had a clip uh, of Joe Biden 
basically threatening people that uh, you know the federal administration and he is losing patience with people that aren't vaccinated and that they need to consider getting vaccinated very very quickly. Uh, but you have another quick clip from that same uh, press conference. Yes, this is his uh, introduction to all of the various restrictions, and uh, again, an, an interesting watch. As your president, I'm announcing tonight a new plan to require more Americans to be vaccinated to combat those blocking public health. My plan also increases testing, protects our economy, and will make our kids safer in schools. It consists of six broad areas of action and many specific measures in each that in each of those actions you can read more about in whitehouse.gov whitehouse.gov was he sure about that <laughs> Did didn't, didn't he read that well? I mean, you know, he's, that's, that's reading the teleprompter at, for Joe Biden, a really high level. That's way better than he has been recently and, and still pretty awful. Um, and he went on to threaten the public and to uh, paint the people who do not, who have chosen not to have the vaccine as this um, hostile group blocking public health and causing the calamity. Um, he painted them as uh, the, the ones who would be the victims. That basically, the only people dying are the unvaccinated. It's an it's a pandemic of the unvaccinated. He said, and he and he came up with uh, with uh, a, a start in just in discussing statistics. But the statistics he he selected were very selective, and he would never compare like with like, and there was no clarity. Um, and and on it went and. The message was very clear that the, the the state, the government, the federal government is going to use its 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 power both legally uh, and in terms of law enforcement and coercion, and in terms of in terms of contract and its financial power to coerce companies to coerce their staff into into becoming vaccinated. They can't mandate it because that would be illegal but they're going to bully companies into doing the thing that would be illegal for the federal government to do. So an interesting um, uh, stance uh, by the Biden administration. Uh, and we've got a, a reaction here to it. Um, yeah. Firstly, in uh, T-shirt form, um, when uh, you can get a, a T-shirt now with a picture of Joe Biden, and it says, your body, my choice. Um, this is uh, obviously mocking the, the, the pro-abortion um, slogan uh, of many years standing uh, and is perfectly accurate. That is the policy. Um, and uh, we've now got um, an, 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 an article I would uh, encourage people to go and, and, and find and, and read it in full, uh, looking at this from the, uh, the point of view of how does... Um, how should we react to this? It's it's a it's a bullying um, by the by the federal government that that's going to remove your basic rights. It's going to try to enforce medical intervention upon you. It's an assault on the most core freedom. How should we respond? Uh, and it's a very good article on LewRockwell.com, um, uh, republished from a Gold Goats and Guns um, article um, by Thomas. Uh, uh, Luongo, 
And he's talking about the, both the, the limitations of Biden as you know, he's, a, he's a senile, senile old man, he's illegitimate, incompetent and incoherent, he, he starts off. But he then goes on to explain that the, the, the threatening nature, the bullying nature of what's coming from the Biden administration is, is demanding, is trying to provoke a violent reaction, a civil war type reaction, demonstrations and violence and anger and rage. And he's saying that's not the way we should respond. These people are behaving like children. We should treat them as such. Uh, they, they, should re, uh, they should meet a calm, assertive statement of purpose. No histrionics, no court challenges, no media conferences, no marches to the Capitol. This is what they want you to do so they can justify self-righteously um, uh, that, that uh, you deserve the internment camps, that you are the terrorists. He says, just exude no. Um, he's saying that we need to he said, our task is now shining a light on this, not in anger, but in pity. For decades, they mistook her silence for assent. It is past time we abuse them of that notion. So he's calling for essentially silence or quiet, firm resistance and a decision not to have anything to do with a state that would behave in this way, rather than falling into the trap of, of anger and street protest and violence and creating the sort of target that a state with an agenda to divide the people, to set one community against the other would welcome. Yeah. Um, David, I think that's such an important point that the idea of these statements by people in power is to inflame their respective nations, cause division, uh, stir up trouble because then everybody's easier to control. So the more stable, measured, and precise we keep things, the stronger we are. Well, let's have a look at uh, another comment from a UK column viewer about razor blades in uh, posters. Brian, just a quick for your information regarding the item of news regarding razor blades being planted behind anti-vaxxer posters. It appears they roll it out on any campaign they see fit. I've linked one to anti-5G and one to the far right. I also know through personal experience that this tactic was used against Extinction Rebellion during the Paint the Streets campaign uh, around the time of the last general election, as I was at that time involved with XR. But unfortunately, I can't source an article to this particular time, but it shook many members who were being accosted. And uh, this was the t one of the two links that was sent through. So it's BBC News, coronavirus, razor blades in anti-5G posters, on telegraph polls, and I think that's May 2020. And uh, we've got neo-Nazis concealing blades behind posters, uh, and this is in the Times, and this is December 2020. And uh, I think you've got a bit more to tell us on this, Mike. Well, well yes, absolutely, because we were talking about this on Friday last week, uh, COVID-19, anti-vaccine posters found with razor blades attached to the back of them to cut people as they're taken down, Union says. This was Sky News reporting this. Uh, and they quoted uh, Mick Lynch from the RMT union, any anti-fax conspiracy theorist resorting to this disgusting practice of lacing their propaganda with razor blades needs to know that they will face criminal prosecution. Well, Sky News wasn't the only uh, organisation to cover it uh, last week. The other one was the BBC. Uh, but the BBC, and the reason we've had to go back to the Wayback Machine here is because the BBC's initial uh, 
headline for this was London transport staff warned of anti-vaccination posters with razor blades. So that echoes or the, the Sky News article, or I'm not sure whether the Sky News article was prompted by this one. Um, but that's a bit strange, as we'll see in a second. But anyway, uh, this particular headline uh, resulted in a tweet from Matt Hancock, the former uh, health secretary. Um, this is a new low even for anti-vaxxers. He says anti-vax propaganda is bad enough to put razor blades on anti-vax leaflets to harm people when removing them is horrific. I hope the police come down on these people with the full force of the law. And he's linked to the BBC article. Um, so he's tweeted this out without any evidence whatsoever that this is actually what happened. Um, but strangely enough, not long after he tweeted that out, uh, the BBC changed the headline to be London Transport Stand Staff Warned of Anti-Mask Posters with Razor Blades. So they're not entirely sure whether the posters were anti-vax or whether they were anti-mask. Uh, but they've definitely settled on anti-mask uh, in this case. Um, so, but the problem was that in this article, uh, London Transport staff warned of anti-mask posters with razor blades. They link to what appears to be the origin of the story, which was nothing to do with Transport for London at all, but was to do with a claim that posters had been put up in Cardiff um, with and it's exactly the same photograph as you can see if I just flick back to the, the, the article from last week and the article from July, um, Cardiff woman cut by razor behind anti-mask poster. So it was an anti-vax poster at TFL. Then it was an anti-mask poster at TFL. That's in London. Now it's an anti-mask poster in Cardiff that happened two months ago, but they're reporting it last week again. And they're using the same photographs that they used for the one from two months ago. Okay, is this all clear to you, Brian? What's going on here? Uh, yeah, pretty clear. The BBC's involved, so I, yes. I think clarity's lacking. Now, unfortunately, uh, for the BBC and for Matt Hancock, um, somebody on Twitter did some research and discovered the person who is behind this. So this is uh, uh, Nice Hat uh, is their Twitter handle. Uh, I did a deep dive into the person behind the razor blade, behind the anti-mask sticker story. They're absolutely lying. It's what this uh, tweet says. Uh, here's the BBC article on the topic. Uh, this was a major story, and it was obviously a lie. Um, and uh, then he points out, so to start, even if there's no other evidence against them, the story is, is absurd on the face of it. How could someone have sustained a slice down the middle of their palm uh, from taking down a laminated poster with the razor blade glued flat to the back of it? So this is the apparent evidence, which shows that there was a razor blade. Um, and if you read the text of the Sky News article, they say that the, uh, the reason they got cut was because the poster was crumpled up uh, and they got cut in the process of crumpling the poster up. But you can see quite clearly the poster hasn't been crumpled up. So this is all uh, looking even more dodgy as we go. But then the, uh, the tweet uh, uh, person here, uh, the person on Twitter here has uh, said, this person who claims this happened to them also claims they were disemboweled by a stranger in Leeds then walked to the hospital carrying their own intestines. Uh, and so they uh, link to two tweets here from the person concerned. Uh, the tweet says, walking home from a night in Leeds, a guy pulled me in, dude cut me open, then left me in this hedge where I sat all quiet, played dead. When he had left, I stood up and my guts kind of fell out. So I picked them up, walked to A&E, and they didn't believe me at first. Uh, I'm sorry, uh, miss. Uh, you'll have to wait. We're very busy. Uh, have you seen what I'm holding? Oh, wow. We'll get you on a bed right away, miss. 
uh, still funny as hell, uh, is what the, the uh, person who has made this allegation of, of uh, uh, razor blades has said. Um, so it turns out that the person is an activist for LGBT and uh, well for trans uh, issues in particular. Uh, and this is them, M3KO Cardiff. Uh, and uh, making the world nicer, apparently, a Cardiff-based sticker bomber, graph artist and activist for trans rights, equality, public transit and more. Uh, and we know that this is the correct person because they uh, tweeted this. Hey up folks, I'm back. Went private as some nasty people were trying to call me a liar, etc. And so uh, in the comments, we discover why they were calling them a liar. Uh, and uh, was it uh, about the sticker that you cut yourself on when the tube started warning staff? Uh, and that's exactly what it was. So that is the right person. Now the question is, why was the BBC and Sky News not able to identify that this was the same person why were they not asking questions about this person having claimed that they'd been disemboweled in Leeds and had to go to the hospital to have their guts put back uh, inside and sewn up? Uh, and where was uh, Mariana Spring in all this? Um, because, of course, as we've highlighted last week, uh, she is pushing this notion. Let's just get her face on screen. She is pushing this notion that anti-lockdown is a gateway towards far-right extremism. Uh, this whole story was designed to, um, in my opinion, David, uh, to push this narrative that uh, uh, anti-lockdown people or people that are skeptical about vaccines are increasingly far-right extremists um, because they're now putting uh, razor blades on posters. It turns out there's much more to this than meets the eye, as usual, uh, but the BBC ain't reporting it. Well, this is the thing, right? So... Uh, item number one, whenever you see uh, any group which paints itself as a victim group pointing at its terrible victimization, you have to have a pause because so often it's self-inflicted for the PR or for the attention or because of some psychological problem. It happens over and over and over again. We've all seen it multiple times. The BBC, you would have thought, would have been aware of this I would have been looking for maybe more than one source if uh, they're going to paint an entire peaceful movement as somehow uh, nasty and violent. Secondly, there's no excuse for, um, for Mariana, uh, the, the disinformation correspondent from the BBC, because she claims to have studied um, the anti-vax movement and been amongst, been amongst them in crowds and seen what they're like. Now, we have as well. We've been in these crowds and we know them to be exceptionally good-natured, very positive, really quite joyful. Um, how you get from that to unquestioningly portraying them as the sort of people who would um, try and booby-trap um, posters with razor blades to, to cut innocent people who are taking them down... Um, I'm not quite sure. I think uh, the BBC have got some explaining to do about the journalism here because it doesn't look like journalism. It looks like stoking up fear and violence. It looks like stoking up hatred and it looks like playing um, the majority against the minority in a way that has deeply troubling um, uh, parallels to many authoritarian um, uh, and cruel uh, governments in many countries across the world. Uh, we're seeing here it's it's this it's anyone who resists the ideology the ideology 
um, anyone who resists the vaccination program, anyone who resists the fear, is now being portrayed as 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 a terrorist or a potential terrorist in order to generate hatred uh, for them amongst the public and presumably presumably tolerance of very draconian action by the state. It's extremely troubling. Why is the BBC engaged in this? It's not journalism. Uh, indeed. Now, uh, uh, okay, let's, uh, sticking with the police for a second, uh, Christina Dick, of course, who we were talking about at the end of last week as well, uh, has in fact managed to keep her job for another two years. So she's uh, had her contract extended until 2024. Uh, she didn't say, ha, I kept my job, but she did say this. Uh, I'd like to thank the mayor, the home secretary and the prime minister for the confidence they've shown in me. Uh, and she went on to talk about leadership and how great, uh, uh, you know, how many great leaders there are in the uh, in the Metropolitan Police. And of course, that's really all she thinks about, Brian, because she is uh, a, a future leader herself. Yeah. Common purpose, future leader trained by common purpose, works to the common purpose, uses the common purpose network. So you don't you don't get Crusader Dick, you get the common purpose uh, doctrine as well. Um, well, um, we're all very happy that we're heading towards a new green economy, of course. And uh, well, one of the impacts of that has been felt well as we speak. Um, so here is a tweet from earlier today. Breaking. This is simply incredible. UK day ahead base load electricity prices jumped to a fresh all time high of £354 per megawatt hour. Uh, intraday prices are much, much higher. To put this in perspective, that's 700% higher than the £45 average from 2010 to 2020. And let's just zoom in on this. Um, so uh, day ahead is, this is the, the trading of electricity on day ahead market. This is sellers and buyers agreeing contracts for delivery of energy for electricity. The day following the trade is done. This is sort of the main arena for, for electricity prices. Um, and uh, so as we said today, it has spiked at 700% higher than the average over the last 10 years or so. You can see there have been a couple of other recent significant spikes there as well. Uh, and on the intraday market, uh, the prices are even higher. So from uh, 7.8pm period, uh, the UK prices reached, this is for tomorrow, £1,750 per megawatt hour. Uh, so that is 2,900% more than the average 2010 to 2020 price for that period. So David, I don't know what you think of this, but uh, uh, as we move towards... Uh, uh, instability of supply as a result of maybe the wind not blowing or the sun not shining. Um, inevitably, we're going to see shortfalls in uh, supply uh, and uh, we may, we're going to see much more instability like this in the markets. We saw at least one energy company in California going out of business uh, just a couple of months ago as a result of this type of uh, uh, instability in the markets, uh, but uh, it's not getting any easier or better. It is not. And of course, uh, huge spikes in energy costs uh, mean that things like, you know, heavy industry, uh, manufacturing um, and uh, other things which would earn the, earn the country its keep on, on, a, on a global scale uh, become impossible. So we end up again being uh, reliant on imports from places like China where they're using, what's that energy source they're using? Oh, yes, coal. Um, uh, which we have lots of, but we can't touch. Um, so it, it becomes a self-defeating policy. Now, it's all based on 
the global warming myth. It's all based on uh, carbon dioxide being seen as uh, poison on a global scale, uh, which I would say is profoundly deceptive, not true. And it's and it also says to people, you, you no longer make calculations based on economic calculation. You base it on political calculation. Um, and that means that the entire country will not be able to compete because there is no means of political calculation which coordinates everyone's activity in the way that price signals do. Uh, yes, and uh, just to mention this, by the way, our, our main import of electricity, not other sources of energy, but electricity in particular, is France. Um, and, uh, well, Boris has apparently... Uh, uh, committed to importing significantly higher uh, rates of uh, amounts of electricity, oh, yes. quantities of electricity across that main inter interconnector. Uh, of course, France, uh, David, is, well, it's mainly nuclear. Yes. Uh, yes, it's nuclear power. And um, it also appears, despite being a former world leader in nuclear power, that we are not, uh, we haven't been able to hold on to our expertise in this particular field. And uh, if we are going to have nuclear power here, one of the sources may well be French technology. Uh, indeed. Um, okay, let's move to Scotland then. And, uh, well, the police have been granted a warrant to look into the uh, fraud from the Scottish National Party that you mentioned a week or two ago. Yes, uh, the Scottish National Party put out a, 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 an appeal for money. Give us money, we will ring fence it, we will only use it for the next independence referendum. And they got £666,000. Don't react, gentlemen, it's just a number. Um, and when someone inquired what had happened to the money, because uh, there hadn't been a second independence referendum, then, um, well, they couldn't get any answers. And then people in charge of the SNP finances started to resign because they couldn't get a straight answer on this. And it was reported to the police as fraud. Uh, and the police are now, it would appear, despite being politically controlled, uh, feel that they must investigate and warrants have been uh, issued. So we will watch this one with interest. Um, the SNP's view is, yes, we spent the money on salaries and, you know, cream teas and and, and uh, tonics tea cakes. No, not, not those. Um, other biscuits. Um, but we'll put it back, obviously, when we do get a a, a second independence referendum. That, um, the, the legality of that defence has not yet been tested in court, and that could be interesting. But surely surely the, the legality of that defence has been tested many times in court because people have had their fingers in the tills of various kinds of businesses over the, year and over the years, and they've always said they would put it back. Well, you might think that, you, you might think, you might have watched Father Ted and you might not have been convinced by ta Father Ted's uh, claim that the money was just resting in his account. It, it, the SNP don't even have that uh, excuse. It wasn't even resting in the account. It had been in the account and they'd spent it. Um, and they had they had gathered that money based on it being ring-fenced. So they are in a somewhat uh, difficult position. And of course, it's difficult with their own support base because it's the true believers in independence as a solution to everything uh, that will have um, given their hard-earned money to the SNP for this campaign. And a lot of a lot of supporters of independence are very unhappy that the money has not been kept for the stated purpose and has been used for other things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least they've got a bank account, David. 
So where does that take us? Well, it takes us to this, which um, is Nottingham University um, talk, September the 13th, Coronavirus Propaganda, Understanding the Communication of Fear. Um, who's the uh, gentleman concerned? It's this guy, Dr. Colin Alexander, Alexander, Senior Lecturer, School of Arts and Humanities. And if we have a little look at the detail, it's an online public lecture which will explain the propaganda techniques used by governments during the coronavirus COVID-19 crisis. So we're not messing around here. David, you were hinting at, um, earlier on in the news about the government's uh, using essentially propaganda to destabilize the country. Uh, now in universities, we've got talks on it. Uh, it says here that Dr. Alexander's central argument is that, quote, the UK government has more or less copied the British wartime propaganda strategy from World War II when dealing with COVID-19 and the behavior it desires from the public. This is partly because this strategy appeared to be the only credible and comprehensive one available to it, but also because many of the government's ambitions, e.g. restrictions upon liberty, the acceptance of mass hardship, the requirement for people to serve, the narrowing of acceptable behaviours, are congruent with wartime propaganda planning. And the text goes on to say that, that this lecture will therefore introduce the concept of propaganda and its theories, discuss the use of wartime propaganda tactics during the COVID uh, crisis and provide poignant anecdotal discussion of key political moments from the last 18 months. Um, now, I need to see a little bit more detail about what's uh, gone into that particular lecture, but of course, um, it can't be simply British wartime propaganda because we've got some very up-to-date applied behavioural psychology being used as boasted by the British government in that Mindspace uh, 2010 document. But at least we're now starting to see universities admit the truth that the government is involved in propaganda. It's not about sorting out health issues. Uh, David, let's move on to culture wars and uh, an article in the Times here headlined uh, Winston Churchill Memorial Trust removes pictures over unacceptable views on race. Yes, uh, they've, uh, a charity set up to honour Sir Winston Churchill has removed all images of him and rebranded itself because of his, quote, unacceptable views on race. Uh, it transpires that, that a man born in the 19th century had 19th century views on race. Who knew? Um, the, the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust has renamed itself the Churchill Fellowship. So they're still trading off the name. They're still keeping the name because, you know, that would be good for good for um, donations, I would, I would have thought. But they've removed a 1400 article that described Churchill as a much loved leader. Uh, and a list of his achievements also seems to have been taken down. So you see here, the reason I'm, I'm showing this is the utter surrender, the cultural cringe is incredible here. This is a complete intellectual surrender to the attack by those who advocate critical race theory. Right? They are, they are not mounting a defence. They are just surrendering. Please stop criticising us. This is a cultural collapse. Uh, and it, it should be recognised as such. And it is obviously not the way um, uh, to behave. And it's not the way that Churchill would have behaved under attack. He would have found some, um, uh, shall we say, gumption and, uh, and an ability to, to actually defend his position. But, but uh, the people running this charity have none of that and have surrendered completely. Now, 
on the subject of surrendering completely, let's go to Canada. Canada have gone a step further. Um, the Ontario School Board have been holding a flame purification ceremony to remove books offensive to Aboriginal knowledge keepers. Now, if that's so, the article goes on here, it says they were surprised to find a school board even worse than the one in San Francisco. Um, and it refers to a school board for French-speaking Catholic schools in Ontario, Canada, and they held a, a flame purification ceremony uh, to get rid of offensive books. And they say, if that sounds a lot like book burning, that's because it is book burning. Uh, and uh, the article goes on to report that uh, this flame purification ceremony uh, burnt book and then buried the ashes as fertilizer to plant a tree. Uh, the board spokesperson, uh, Lynn Crosette, told the National Post that uh, the board formed a committee and many Aboriginal knowledge keepers and elders participated and were consulted at various stages, from conceptualization to the evaluation of the books to the tree planting initiative. So, you know, she's spoken to a lot of people and they all said that book burning was good. So she's convinced that book burning is good. Um, now, they've, they've gone through an incredible number of books um, and they found offence everywhere. So we're, we're talking about thousands of books. Uh, they did, however, feel that burning thousands of books in a huge big pyre might have an unfortunate uh, reminder of other uh, previous um, attacks on liberty. So um, they decided not to do that because that might look bad. So they've they've removed 4,700 books, but they only burnt one as a kind of symbol of, of their book burning, rather than burning all 4,700 in a giant pyre. Um, many of the authors of these books were genuinely shocked that their books had been banned. Um, some of them seem to be extremely sympathetic towards what you might say uh, Native or First Nation Canadians' point of view. Um, but they were banned anyway, so it doesn't seem clear what acceptable is. But we're very clear that there's a lot of things which are unacceptable, and book burning is now on the school curriculum in Canada. Uh, and how much of this, uh, David, do you think is driven by, and you can have a discussion about, about justification, but how much of it is driven by the recent revelations over the treatment of Indigenous people by the, particularly the Roman Catholic Church in schools? I don't think that's a driving force. Um, the driving force seems to be the, the, the critical theory, the attack on culture, and uh, the, the, the constant criticism and, and the offence culture. Because we're not talking about factual information on people being harmed, which is what needs to be explored when you're looking at the treatment of, uh, uh, of what they're terming here, Aboriginal communities, um, by um, churches and by the state in Canada. Um, we're not talking about facing up to unfortunate facts or facing reality. We're talking about destroying children's books because, I mean, one of the books is Tintin, right? We're talking about um, political correct type uh, attack on culture. 
so it, it seems to be more than that. Now, it, Trudeau was asked about this, and he said that um, it, that no white person should should have anything to say about how an how a native person wants to uh, f f um, find restitution. Right, so that that's giving people a complete blank check as to how to behave, and then he said, "But I wouldn't agree with book burning." So he doesn't know what he thinks. Um, so there's a, there's a huge tendency not to be able to grasp the truth of this, not to be able to uh, have any sort of standards and sort and and, and essentially to retreat um, culturally again, and it's and and surrender the ground. So the ground that's been surrendered here is in not in the case of Churchill, our history, but our intellectual um, inheritance where ideas can be discussed. That's the ground that's now being seeded because we're not going to discuss ideas. We're not going to debate them. We're not going to have views on them. We're going to burn the ones we don't like. Yeah. It's not, it's not, it's not a positive um, trend. Yeah. Okay. Okay, thanks for that. Now, look, we're right out of time, David. So uh, I think if we're going to do this uh, next one, I think we're going to have to put, a, say, three or four minutes on it, if you could. Yeah, th this is uh, one that got uh, bumped from last week uh, on time again, but uh, something else has cropped up. This is government Greg Abbott's um, move to um, restrict abortion in Texas. Now, the it's, it's called the heartbeat law. Essentially, once a fetal heartbeat is detected, the, the, the child is viewed as being alive and has to be protected in the normal manner. And uh, there are rules available for suing anyone who might uh, carry out an operation to kill that person. Um, this um, met with a lot of opposition from the Obama regime. Um, so uh, Biden launches a federal effort here, CNN reports, to respond to the Texas law. Um, and he, he calls this an unprecedented assault on women's constitutional rights. Those are not the constitutional rights to decide whether you're vaccinated. Just to be clear, these are not the rights we're talking about here. These are other rights. Um, so they, they've, they've doubled down. Uh, Biden said he was uh, launching a whole-of-government effort, whatever that means. I'm not sure he knows. Um, to respond to the law, tasking the Department of Health and Human Services and the Justice Department to see what steps the federal government can take to ensure that women in Texas can have access to abortions. Um, and he said the effort would be led from the White House. Well, not exactly, but we'll come to that in a minute. Now, I just want to point out, this is a, this next shot is a, a picture of a 20-week-old uh, child in the womb, 20, 20 weeks gestation. And it's, it's photographs like this that have essentially destroyed the case for abortion because it's made clear that this argument is a lump of cells and it's not a human being is not true. So this is what's driving the, the, the swing against abortion. And who is defending it? Who in Texas uh, are leading the, the efforts to, uh, to defend abortion? Well, it's none other than the Satanists. They demand the right to perform their ritual abortions. Uh, American Action News here reports, and, and they go into some um, uh, detail of exactly what surgical abortions, what role surgical abortions play in satanic ritual. So this is very clear. This is the Satanist church. <clears throat> 
making it absolutely clear that the, the, the murder of the unborn is part of their religious practice. And they're trying to use the religious exemption to defend abortion rights. That's bad enough, you would think. But it gets worse. The left wing, or shall we say the statist view, represented by Salon, right, is now supporting the Satanists. They're cheering on the Satanists. Um, Salon reports why Satanists may be the last best hope to save abortion rights in Texas. Um, so they're seeing, they are, they are allied with the Satanists. And this is, this is making it very clear that ultimately these arguments, which are uh, framed with a lot of deception, ultimately come down to some very core ideas of right and wrong. And you see here the Church of Satan and the left wing and the state, the federal government in this case, are aligned perfectly in favour of killing the unborn. Um, this is not going to change the people who have seen this as evil and who are, who are against it. They are not going to be persuaded or bullied by the Satanists saying, well, we want a religious rights. Um, but it's a very interesting development, and it shows you where uh, the, the political becomes, the cultural becomes the uh, spiritual, uh, and they all are linked under the surface. That's perhaps a dark... Uh story to end on. So why don't we uh, lift the mood slightly, David, with a final video clip? Uh, yes, this is from Glasgow. It's uh, a short clip from uh, a song called Make a Stand, which you can find on YouTube. And we'll... Sorry, I'm making a complete mess of that today. I do apologise. We, we keep going. We've had an interesting... Right. So today. They... So this is this is about a video called Make a Stand. This is this is the end sequence from it. The full video song is extremely upbeat, extremely encouraging, and it shows the sort of spirit that is in the people who are resisting the government tyranny. And that spirit is joyful, it's friendly, it's um, fearless, and it's a pleasure to be part of.
Right, well, thank you for that, David. <laughs> we, we made it to the end anyway, yeah. so, so that's good. Uh, we just say we're very much hoping that Patrick Henningsen will be back with us on Friday. There's no, a number of people asking. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, so we'll, we'll give you another update on that uh, on Wednesday. Uh, some, very tough, uh, some very tough subjects in the news today. So uh, we say to people, if you're researching, do it gently, do a bit at a time and make sure you're doing other things and you're not just uh, spending long hours into the night looking at some of the uh, the harder stuff. Um, some people in the chat room saying uh, they found some of that content very difficult, which um, we understand. Yes. Uh, stick with us if you're on the UK Column live stream for, uh, for extra. And otherwise, I guess we'll be back at 1 p.m. on Wednesday. Yes. Well, the state permitting. Yes. Okay. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye. See you then.